Where was God when the six million died? I have no easy answer to that extremely hard question, but it's one I receive all the time. But since today is International Holocaust Remembrance Day, stay with me, because we'll be talking about that question in just a moment. Hello, friends. Welcome to Open Line with Dr. Michael Radelnik, Moody Radio's Bible study across America. I'm Michael Radelnik. I'm the academic dean and professor of Jewish studies and Bible at Moody Bible Institute. And we're together live, all of us sitting around the radio kitchen table, taking your questions about the Bible, God, and the spiritual life. If you have a question and you'd, and you'd like to call, all you have to do is pick up the phone. Here's the number, 877-548-3675. Let me give that to you again, slower, 877-548-3675. Seven five. Trish McMillan is in the producer's chair. Bob's handling all things technical, and Laura is answering the phones today. Again, the phone number, 877-548-3675. Well, I think it's time to go get your cup of coffee and open your Bible, because we're about to study the scriptures together. I don't remember a time when I wasn't aware of the Holocaust. Both my parents were survivors. Both of them lost all their families, parents, siblings, grandparents. My dad had one sister out of six siblings that survived. Uh, only one survived. He and his sister, four perished. Uh, my dad even was married and had children. And his first wife, four sons and daughter, one daughter, all perished at Auschwitz. Those are my four half-brothers, my half-sister. Some survivors married after the war became parents, and they never talked about the Holocaust. The irony in my family was my parents seemed to only talk about the Holocaust. It was a constant topic of conversation. And even as a child, my heart was so broken about the Holocaust. So if anyone would expect me to give simplistic answers here, and in the few minutes we have today, just say, I'll solve this uh, major theological, philosophical conundrum in just a few moments. It's just not going to happen. But I can mention a few perspectives about the Holocaust of several, just a few of them, three of them to be exact, that have brought comfort to my heart. The first one is that God kept his promise to preserve the Jewish people. So often we talk about what happened, how terrible it was, but God promised in his word that it was impossible to destroy the Jewish people. It says in Jeremiah 31, 35 through 37, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. This passage is pretty clear. It's saying if you can stop the sun, moon, and stars from shining, only then could you stop the Jewish people from existing. 
it says that if you can go down to the center of the earth, like that old movie, and measure it out, if you can uh, measure the foundations of the earth, if you can uh, search out the earth below, search out the heavens, if you can do all those things, and you can't, no one can, then it would mean the end of the Jewish people. So God promised to preserve the Jewish people, and he did. You know, when you think about it, uh, Hitler had the most powerful army on earth and by all accounts should have really won World War II. Had he won, then it's, it's likely that he would have destroyed all the Jewish people. I think this is crucial to remember. When I went to Israel for the World Gathering of Holocaust Survivors back in 1981, Menachem Begin, then Prime Minister of Israel, spoke at the Western Wall on the last night of this conference, and he urged the survivors and the first generation, or second generation, first generation survivors, second generation who were there like me, to believe in God. He said that Hitler came so close to atomic weaponry. He, had, he was so far advanced in rocketry that by all accounts, he could have won the war had he succeeded in building the atomic bomb. Then he said, but God intervened and the Allies won before he could do that, before Hitler could actually get the atomic bomb. He said, it's terrible what happened, but he said God did preserve his people. God did protect his people. And then he looked at that crowd and he said, I know many of you don't believe in God because of what happened, but look at his preservation of his people. And then he urged them to believe Please believe in the God of Israel. That was just a tremendous event, and it's true. God did preserve his people as he promised in his word. Second, God in his providence used the Holocaust, Holocaust to bring about the state of Israel. In Genesis 50, 20, it speaks of Joseph and his brothers, and uh, God, the author says that they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That even the most terrible actions God can use to bring about a good end. And that's what the world did after World War II. I'm not saying there wouldn't have been a state of Israel without the Holocaust, but somehow the world, in a moment of guilt, thought what we need to do is create a state of Israel so that Israel, the Jewish people, can defend itself against other attempts at genocide. And so as a result of that, the state of Israel came into being. They meant it for evil the Nazis did, but God meant it for good in the sense that he could bring about the state of Israel. I find it ironic that yesterday the International Court of Justice announced that they, although they did not say that Israel was committing genocide in Gaza today, they did say that it was plausible that Israel is committing genocide. That's something the United States government has said is ridiculous. Israel is doing everything they can to preserve civilian life as they go after Hamas, a genocidal organization that is committed to the genocide of the Jewish people. And as a result, one of the judges in a, in a uh, disagreement with the court's decision said, it's like blaming Abel for the sin of Cain if we're to blame Israel uh, for the sins of Hamas. Here's the third principle besides God preserving the Jewish people and bringing about the state of Israel, God was present with the Jewish people in all their suffering. It says in Isaiah 63, 9, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. One of the most basic principles of the Bible is that God suffers with his people. 
when people ask me, where was God? I always say he was with us in the concentration camps, in the death camps, in God was with our people in the gas chambers and in the crematoria. God was with his people suffering with them. And as one rabbi put it, the real question ought not to be where was God, but rather, because we know where he was, he was with his people. The real question was, where was man? How depraved humanity can be that they would carry out such an evil action? Uh, we ought to be asking, where was man? In this age of anti-Semitism, the question is, what will we do? You know, since October 7th and Israel's defensive actions against Hamas, anti-Semitic incidents in the United States and around the world, but in the United States alone, have increased by 400%. And it's getting worse. People don't even know what they're talking about. They just know that they hate the Jewish people. What are we who love the God of Israel supposed to do for all the people of Israel, not just in the state of Israel, but for the Jewish people worldwide, we need to speak up. Here's what Proverbs 24, 11 and 12 says. Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does he not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay each person according to what he has done? The Bible's really clear. God loves the Jewish people. Therefore, I think we need to be the loudest voices speaking up, writing to our congressmen, calling it out when we hear anti-Semitism. We need to be the ones that stand up and oppose the hatred of the Jewish people, the hatred that God hates most. Well, we're going to go right to the phones, and as we go to the phones, we're going to speak with Louise, listening on uh, in Ohio on Moody Radio on the Moody Radio app. Welcome to Open Line, Louise. How can I help you today? Well, I wanted to tell you, I I used to uh, listen to WCRF, and and then I couldn't get it anymore because I live a hundred feet from Lake Erie, uh -huh. and so. Uh, but I heard you, I was in my car, and I heard you speaking, and I thought, oh, who is he? And I, then you said your name, and I thought, how am I going to remember that name? <laughs> so uh, I, I thought, oh, I took some memory courses when I was er, younger, in my 80s, and, uh, and I thought, well, I'll try this. So this is how I remembered your name. Rye, I love Jewish rye bread. Good. Dell, Dell, you get it at the deli, and in the nick of time. And so that's, that's good. how I remember your name. Yeah, you know, I've often when people when I first started doing open line, people couldn't figure out what my name was, so I would say rye as in rye bread, Dell as in the <laughs> farmer in the Dell, oh. and uh, oh. in the nick of time. So it's close, yeah. very close, yeah. uh, yeah. Louise. Well, yeah. what's what's your question? How can I help you? Okay, well, I have a sister who's 98, and uh, a long time ago, she we were both raised in a, a, a Lutheran church that was traditional. It's, uh, they believed the, believe the Bible. Well, she had some 
men come to their church and they told her that uh, the Old Testament wasn't true at all. It was just made-up stories. Well, she believed that, and so she joined that church as an ELCA. And but she, when I told her, I I said, "How can you believe that? The way we were raised, the whole, uh, they believed the whole Bible." So she said, well, it doesn't make any difference because I believe in Jesus as my Savior. But mm-hmm. I just can't, and she's never changed, so I really can't talk to her about it. So I'm wondering, can you be saved and not believe in the Old Testament? Well, I think it's imperative that we believe the Old Testament, uh, not for salvation, but for our own growth. Uh I would just say this one thing the Lord Jesus said in John 17, 3, 4. He said, uh, sanctify them in the truth. He's speaking about his followers. Your word is truth. And when he said that, the word of God was the Old Testament. So the key to spiritual growth is to be sanctified in the truth, and that's the truth of God's word. So I think it's essential to grow as a believer, to read, study, obey God's word, and that includes the Old Testament. Now, in light of that, can she still be saved? Well, the Bible doesn't say that we're saved by faith in the Old Testament. The Bible says that we are saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus. The good news is this, that Jesus died for our sins as a substitution for our sins. He took the punishment we deserve. Now, this is crucial because it says, according to the Scriptures, Uh, Yet, nevertheless, uh, he died for our sins, and then he was raised again, proving he's God. If your sister believes that and trusts in that alone, of course she can be saved. Uh, That's the core issue uh, for salvation. But, of course, not knowing the uh, or studying the Old Testament scriptures will keep her from growing as a believer. We're going to take a break here. Thanks for your call, Louise. We're going to come right back in just a few minutes with more of your questions. You can always call us, 877-548-3675, or check out our website, openlineradio.org, and click on the Ask Michael a Question button if you want to send your question in. Don't go away. More questions coming up straight ahead. Welcome back to Open Line. I'm Michael Reitelnik. If you would like to revolutionize the way you read the scripture, to get a grip of what it's saying and and read it in a way that you've never read before, I want to tell you about our current resource. It's called Living by the Book, and it was written by Professor Howard Hendricks. When I went to seminary, the first course we all took at our school was Bible study methods, and it was taught by Prof. Hendricks, who was a a master teacher, just phenomenal. And it made us read the Bible in a new and fresh way that we had never read it before. And then he committed that course to writing, and it's the book called Living by the Book. I think this is so vital. And so 
If you would like this terrific resource, we want to send it to you as a thank you for any a gift of any size, any amount, to OpenLine. If you'd like to give a gift, we'll send you Living by the Book by Prop Hendricks just to say thanks. To give your gift, go to OpenLineRadio.org, and you can give your gift there online, or you can just call 888-644-7122. And thank you so much for supporting this program. We're going to talk with Joanne in Indianapolis, Indiana, listening in WGNR. Welcome to Open Line, Joanne. How can I help you today? Thank you for taking my call. I was mm-hmm. wondering about Matelzadek. I've never understood who he really was or if he was real, if he was a real king. Uh, did he have a mother and father? What's his genealogy? And when did he come into play? And how does he come into play with the Lord Jesus Christ? Mm-hmm. Well, it starts with Genesis 14. When uh, Abraham returns from rescuing Lot from the kings who had kidnapped him. And as he returned, it says in Genesis 14, that in verse 18, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, which is the food of worship, even in ancient times. Just like today, when we have the Lord's Supper, we use bread and wine, right? Well, back then, this is worship food. And he was a priest to God Most High. So what that's saying is that there was this king, king of Salem, which was probably an early name for Jerusalem. And he was a a king of a city-state in the sense that uh, it was like what we would call a mayor, but each city-state was independent. There was no confederation yet into one country. And so he was the king of that city-state of Jerusalem. And he blessed Abram, and Abram paid tithes to him. He gave a tenth of everything he had obtained. And that's all we know about him. He he appears out of nowhere, and, uh, you know, there's no record of parents or, you know, who's the king before him or anything like that. Uh, But instead, Abram pays tithes to him and indicating uh, a recognition of this king's greatness. Now, when we come to uh, Hebrews chapter, well, you go a little bit further in Scripture, uh, you come to Psalm 110, it says there that when the Messiah comes, he will be like Melchizedek. He will. Uh, what God declares of the Messiah is that you are a priest forever, according to the uh, the manner of Melchizedek, in the sense that Melchizedek appears out of nowhere, disappears, so he stands forever. So Psalm 110, when it says that, it's saying when the Messiah comes, he won't be a, Jew, uh, a Levitical priest, he'll be a Melchizedekian priest, and his priesthood will last forever. Because, uh, of course, in Genesis 14, Melchizedek was a king and priest. In Israel, priesthood and kingship were separated. But when the Messiah comes, he will be a priest and king, for you are a priest forever, like Melchizedek. And then we come to Hebrews 7, when it's trying to, uh, there the author of 
uh, Hebrews is discussing Melchizedek. And in chapter 7, now some people believe that Melchizedek, I'll just throw this in, uh, that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus. Uh, I don't think so. But there are many, many good Bible scholars who believe that. And what it says in Hebrews 7 is that uh, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham and blessed him, and he returned from defeating the kings, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, which means king of peace, without father, mother, or genealogy. Well, what that means that he he just appears out of nowhere, and when the Lord Jesus appeared, of course we know his genealogy. They're found in Luke and Matthew. But what it's saying is God the Son appeared. He doesn't have, you know, the, many people mistakenly think of Mary as the mother of God. She's the bearer of God. Uh, now, of course, God the Father has a relational aspect with God the Son, but the Lord Jesus really comes from eternity. He's the eternal God. And then it says having uh, the, of, of this Melchizedek, he just appears in the same way. We don't have a genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life. We don't know whatever happened to him. The Lord Jesus, we do know. He's eternal. He lives forever. And then it says of Melchizedek that he resembles the Son of God. He's made like the Son of God. In other words, what it's saying is that the Old Testament picture of Melchizedek gave us a pattern of what the Messiah would be like. That's what it's saying. Okay? Okay. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much for your call. Uh, I think the interesting thing about the uh, the the verses in Hebrews, it indicates that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Therefore, since Levi was still inside of Abraham, so to speak, because he had, you know, obviously Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Levi came from him. In a sense, Levi and his priesthood paid tithes to Melchizedek, because he was in uh, Abram still. And so it says that the Melchizedekian priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. So Jesus' priesthood is superior. That's the point he's trying to make. We have a, we have a greater high priest. And we're going to talk with Larry in Alaska, listening on the uh, through the Alaska Village Mission in, what is that, Can I? Alaska. Hello. Hi there, Larry. Kenai, Alaska. Hey, w- Larry, you with me? Larry, can you hear me? Hello. Yeah, go ahead. Can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Okay. Hi. Um, thank you for taking this call, and thank you for the general topic that you're discussing today. I think it needs to be discussed over and over, but that's not my question. <clears throat> my question mm-hmm. is. Uh, in my daily devotions, I got to the point where I got to First Chronicles. I just read nine chapters of First Chronicles, all of which are big apps. And I thought, now I'll move on to something else. And what I moved on to was the names of all David's mighty men. I don't know any of these people. I can't pronounce most of their names. Uh, I know how to use Romans eight twenty-eight to 32, or Psalm 91, or Psalm 46, or Psalm 139, when I'm worshiping, I don't know how to use uh, the fact 
that the the tribe of Asher had mighty men. Mm-hmm. Is that a question, or do I need to uh, to expand? What, what you what you're saying is, what is the value of reading chronicles? What's the benefit? Yeah, well, I, I, I'm a historian. I have begun to find uh, connections between the, the begats and various narrative portions of the scriptures, but I'm not sure that's the same thing as worship. I'm wondering what is the value of reading the begats? Uh, okay, okay, Larry, let me see if I can. I've only got about a minute to answer, so let me see if I can answer. First of all, when you read the genealogies, it depends on the book. There may be some important aspect of the genealogy uh, that carefully you'll pick up. Uh, I am agreeing with you in a sense that uh, it, these begats and chronicles seem a little tedious. However, what it does tell me is that the, the writers of the Bible were very careful in keeping records. And so even though the begat stories uh, are maybe a little tedious for us, Nevertheless, they, they confirm the historicity and accuracy of the Bible. So when we read the rest of it, we can take it at face value. So it's to build confidence in us. Also, well, there are some other parts of it, too, that are valuable. Uh, Larry, keep listening. We'll talk about it just a little bit more. We're going to come right back with the mailbag with Trisha in just a moment, the uh, FEBC mailbag. So stay with us. More questions coming up straight ahead right here on Open Line with Michael Ray Delman. Welcome back to Open Line. I'm Michael Ray Delnick. I'm so grateful. Trisha McMillan will be joining me in just a moment for the Far Eastern Broadcasting Company mailbag that i'm so grateful that far eastern broadcasting company partners with open line to bring you the weekly febc mailbag even on uh, uh a time when we're taking questions live we always have the mailbag so you can write to us by going to openlineradio.org and click on ask michael a question if you're interested in learning more and i hope you are uh, about how febc is reaching people worldwide Check out the FEBC podcast that's called Until All Have Heard. All you have to do is go to febc.org. That's febc.org, and you can find the podcast there. And joining me right now is Trisha McMillan, who is uh, my co-worker right here at Moody Bible Institute, Moody Radio. So grateful for all that you do with me. Hey, you know, I did want to say something. This uh, radio program that we you and i you get to serve on chris favory live mm -hmm. and and do so much it's all listener supported and uh so we partner to work together but our listeners partner with us first of all by listening which we're so grateful mm -hmm. for some partner with us by uh giving an occasional gift and uh they even get a resource from from open line when they do and i'm so grateful for that one of the most important ways that listeners partner with us is by becoming a kitchen table partner. And everyone thinks you're the kitchen table partner, Trisha, because you work here every week. <laughs> you're right around the radio kitchen table with me. But that's not the issue that I'm looking at. Is It's our listeners who sit around the radio kitchen table 
They see the value of this program. They know that listener-supported radio is so crucial because we can give the Word of God to people as they are interested in it and looking for it. And so uh, I am really grateful for our kitchen table partners who give monthly and uh, who want to be part of this ministry by doing that. And then also, uh, I so appreciate it. So we send them a Bible study moment every other week. The Bible study moment is a a brief Bible study. You get in your email, click on it, listen to it. uh, And uh, we'll spend about five to seven minutes in the Word of God together every couple weeks. I hope you'll consider becoming a kitchen table partner. If you are, all you have to do is go to openlineradio.org. That's our website. You can see a link there for becoming a kitchen table partner, or you can just call 888-644-7122. That's 888-644-7122 to become a kitchen table partner. And now here's my, are you a partner in crime? What are you? <laughs> I suppose. I suppose. Yeah. I'm not crime, a partner in study. Okay, right? there we go. That's it, better. <laughs> uh, you know, let's talk about Chronicles. Uh, oh, yes, yes. Larry. Yes, finish okay. Larry's Yeah, Have you ever read Chronicles? I have. Is, aren't those, those, let's agree, those those genealogies can be pretty tedious, right? Yes, and they don't, but, and, and we don't know who they are, so they're just names that you can't pronounce, mm-hmm. and I, yeah. yeah. What, I, what I, I really like those names, because I, I can pronounce them, so I can show up <laughs> if I ever have to read them. Uh, but here's the uh, the issue: is it? I really do believe that it shows the historicity of of matters. But then, right within those genealogies, you get a little bit of something. Uh, like, for example, there's a very famous book that came out of First Chronicles four. Jabez Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. This is First uh, Chronicles four nine. His mother named him. Jabez and said, I gave birth to him in pain. The word Jabez, Yabetz, is he causes pain. In other words, when he was born, she said, man, this labor hurt a lot. What a pain this baby is. Jabez called out, and I'm sure she held it against him. She always said, you are such a pain. Well, every time she said his name, she'd be saying that, right? Yeah. And, and named him that. And think about it. I'm, as parents, we both know that what we say to our kids so often can script them mm-hmm. for life mm-hmm. and make them how we help them understand who they are by what we say to them. And can you imagine the pain that it brought to Jabez to be reminded all the time that he was a pain? Hmm. So he prayed. He called out to the God of Israel, if only you would bless me. Extend my border. Let your hand be with me and keep me from pain, harm, so that I will not cause any pain. And God granted his request. You know what he was saying? God, please overcome the scripting of my mom. Hmm. And I think about it. Anyone listening to this, when you think there's nothing I can learn from Chronicles, think about the... Sadly, we all receive negative scripts and positive ones from our parents, some more negative, some more positive. Well, whatever script it is that was negative, that we think that we can't get out of the way of, do you know who we can turn to, to re-script our lives? To the Lord Jesus, to God himself. 
and he can create a future that is far better than anything envisioned by our parents. When someone tells me, I don't know why we have First Chronicles 1 through 9, I say, yeah, I agree. It's kind of tedious. But I, I can trust this. And then right in the middle, I find this gem that every day in my life, I can worship God and trust him to give me a new script for whatever it is that my parents uh, might have scripted me with. Don't you think? Mm-hmm. The other thing, I, I and I don't, I'm not sure if this would help Larry or not, but um, I know that when I have read Genesis more recently and then read Chronicles, I have these stories then that go through my head because I'm like, oh, yeah, this is who that group was. And this is this is these are all the people, all the descendants of Judah, which is what First Chronicles mm-hmm. four is or, you know, the descendants of Reuben in chapter five that that you have read those stories about who those men were in Genesis, that that to see their generations, that despite all of the evil or all of the good and all of the things that were happening, that you still see God working with this group of people that he has chosen, and you still see that, and there's a purpose when you look forward then, and you look at like Matthew 1 in the genealogy, mm-hmm. that these names show up again. Um, yeah. that you see that, that line just never stops, right? Right, right. That you to, see this, this carried right to, to Jesus. Yeah, you see it carried to David, and you see it carried to Jesus um, mm. through these genealogies, which are tedious to read because we don't know who they are. But they're important. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, I was just thinking about David's mighty men. Mm-hmm. Back when I was in seminary, I preached a sermon about one of David's mighty men who fought a lion in a pit on a snowy day. And think about it. He's in a pit with a lion, and, and he's snow. fighting the lion, and it's snowing. Which means it's and muddy it's, and gross and slushy and cold and wet and, and slippery, slippery. So you can't get out of the the pit. Pit. And the the what made him mighty is that God empowered him to accomplish great things for his leader. I I still believe to this day that God can empower us to accomplish things far beyond our ability. He can enable us uh, to serve our king as well. So, I, I mean, there's great things in there. Men of Iskar in First Chronicles 12 who understood the times, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they were there was a whole, I still remember do. when I was young, no, no, not true. When I was younger, um, when I was a student at Moody Bible Institute, that was one of the first years of Founders Week that I attended um, that was the theme verse and the theme mm-hmm. passage. Men of Vizcar who understood their times. And so you could also and knew go what back to and, do. and knew what to do. You could go back and listen to that whole series, I think, online. But yeah. anyway, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Anyway, I hope that helps Larry a little bit. Uh, let, let's see if we can answer a couple of mailbag questions. Okay, here. well, we'll stick with David. Um, go to Second Samuel 24, which says, Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, And he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. And then a few verses later in verse 10, it says, David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I've done a very foolish thing. So this is Dwayne's question. He says, Some friends and I are trying to understand why David thought he had sinned against God after he had been told by God to take the census. Well... He was being tested. I mean, obviously, the Lord's anger burned against 
Israel again. He stirred up David against them to say, go count the people of Israel. He's basically testing them. Do you need to count them or can you trust me? And if you read in, I believe it's Second Chronicles uh, 21, First Chronicles 21, uh, there it says, uh, an adversary came and prompted David to count Israel. So what did God use to test him? I'm finding the verse now. Uh, it says, my version says Satan, mm-hmm. but it, it, it's not the normal word for Satan. It's called, uh, usually when you have the name, the uh, Satan in the Bible, it's Hasatan. It has the article on it. Okay. This doesn't. So it just means an adversary stood up against Israel and incited David to count the people of Israel. So what? when I put these two together, God used this adversary to test David to see if he would trust him or not. And so it seems to me that's why the Lord's anger burned, because instead of trusting him, David said, i got to count every soldier and make sure I have enough men to deal with this adversary. So I think that's that's what's going on there. Okay. So almost like, do you need to, so I guess you just said this, but do I need to have, do I have at least 300 men? Do I have at least 1,000 men yeah. that we can actually yeah. have a chance of winning this rather yeah. than just trusting God? I have I have the God of Israel. Okay. <laughs> With me, you yeah. know, it says, it says in uh, Psalm twenty, some trust in horses, some in chariots. We'll trust in the name of the Lord our God. So, that's that's what I think is being tested there. Okay, all right. Thank you for that question, Dwayne. I think that's all we have time for. That's all we have time to. We're going to yeah. take a break here, okay? And then we come back next time. I won't talk about Chronicles <laughs> with you in the next hour when we do the the uh, FEBC mailbag. Instead, we'll just take questions, okay? All right. I'll try and take more next hour. All right. Uh, we're we're going to come right back with more of your phone calls in just a moment. You're listening to Open Line with Michael Reitelnik, and that was Trisha McMillan. Stay with us. We're coming right back. Welcome back to Open Line. So glad that you're listening. You know, it's January still, and even though it's the last week of January, it's still the beginning of the year, and it's good to remember God's priority of reaching the Jewish people with the good news of the Messiah, Jesus. And that's why our partner, Chosen People Ministries, is offering a free booklet to Open Line listeners. It's called To the Jew First in the 21st Century. It was written by Dr. Al Mohler. It's taken right from the Bible, and Dr. Moeller reminds us what we need to know about Israel, the Jewish people, and outreach to our Jewish friends and neighbors. If you'd like a free copy, just go to the Open Line website. That's openlineradio.org. Scroll down until you see the link that says, A Free Gift from Chosen People Ministries. So as you're scrolling, you'll see a free gift. Click on that link, and that will take you to a page where you can sign up for your free copy of To the Jew First in the 21st century. We're going to speak with Jane in Chattanooga, Tennessee, listening on WMBW. I love Chattanooga because I love the song, Chattanooga Choo Choo. So, 
Hey, Jane, how can I help you? Down, Nick, and I love you. Oh, you're hey, a precious hey. teacher. You know, I'm so in love with Matthew 9. Oh, uh, Matthew 9, 9 is the call of Matthew. And, of course, 9, 9 is a palindrome. And I saw another palindrome in verse 14 came 4334, and it's also in verse 20. But my question is uh, about... Uh, verse 15, and my original question was uh, when I talked to the um, caller taker. Well, just um, ask whatever your but, question is. Um, just go for your question. Don't okay. don't talk well, about what you used to be. I, you know, I'm I'm so full. My heart is so full. It's hard for me to put things shortly. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Does God call us to fast, or uh, do we make the decision, or it is a matter of God? Uh, God um, is calling us to take up our cross and and. Um, and believe that um, we can believe the unbelievable. Verse eighteen, we we come with great expectations, and do we do it? Okay, okay. Jane, Jane, Jane. This is our last segment. I got it. I got it. Let me see if I can give you a little answer. Okay, is that okay with you? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, I just didn't want to run out of time. Uh, God does in the scriptures, there's fasting. Fasting, as I understand it, has various purposes. Sometimes fasting is for lament or sorrow. Uh, and that is a, a certainly vital way of, of expressing sorrow. Uh, that's sort of where the Yom Kippur fast comes from, or the fast of Gadaliah and things like that. When we remember things with great sorrow, we fast. Another uh, aspect of fasting is fasting is a spiritual discipline. It teaches us to rely. Uh, spiritual discipline isn't something that brings us merit. What it does is it brings us, uh, in a way, it teaches us how to walk closer with God. And so what, what that means is that... Uh, for example, fasting from food might teach us to be utterly dependent on God and not food, not personal strength. That It teaches us depend. So we practice learning dependence on God when we fast. And then when we need absolute dependence on him, we've trained ourselves through fasting to be utterly dependent on him. It's also the same thing. It also gives us focus. That's a third purpose. Fasting can give us focus. Uh, so we're not thinking, if we're fasting from food, we're not thinking about shopping. We're not thinking about uh, uh, cooking. We're not thinking about scheduling times to eat. What we're doing is we are focusing on the Lord. We're using that time to focus on spiritual growth and uh, prayer, hopefully. So those are some of the purposes for fasting. I don't think that uh, there's any kind of like, okay, you better feast uh, fast twice a week or anything like that in Scripture. I think it's much more uh, uh, a personal leading from God. But those are some of the purposes of it, Jane. Thanks for your call. Really appreciate it. We're going to speak with Leo very quickly on WRMB in Florida. How can I help you, Leo? 
Hey, God bless you, brother. I, I bless you in the name of the Lord Yeshua. Uh, my question is this. If Samuel died in 1 Samuel, how did he write 2 Samuel being dead? He didn't write 2 Samuel, nor did he write 1 Samuel. Uh, the, oh. the book is attributed to him because it starts off being about him, and that's why it was called First and Second Samuel. But if you really look at the theme of the one book, uh, as it is in Hebrew, it's First uh, and Second Samuel is just the book of Samuel, the way it was written. Who's it really about? You've got Samuel, who is the prophet who anointed two po- potential kings. Uh, what the first Solomon. king w- was Saul, and he failed. And then you've got David, who was the one that the Lord. Uh, was the one after God's own heart, the Lord's choice, and who had a heart for God. Uh, the the Lord was David's choice. So what we, as opposed to Saul. So what you really have is a book that's about David. And uh, I would say that Samuel is there because he is seen in his role as the anointer of kings. And then you have Saul there, who's there in his role as uh the nemesis or the opposite of David to see why God chose David and used David and made the Davidic covenant with David. So it's really about David. Uh, That's what the book is about. If I could rename the books of first and second Samuel, I tell this to classes all the time that I would call them first and second David, because that's really what the books are about. It's about uh, David and the, the focal point of the book is really the Davidic covenant where God promised an eternal house, kingdom, and throne to David. And the only one that would ever fulfill that is the great son of David, the Messiah, Jesus. So uh, it's no one ever thought that Samuel actually authored uh, the books of David, so to speak, or the books of Samuel. Okay, Leo? Okay, thank you. So, so most theologians think that it's basically David that wrote this as he wrote most No, no, no. We don't know who wrote it. It's about David is what I was saying. You don't saying. know it? You don't know? No one you knows don't who know. wrote it. No, no one knows who wrote it, Leo. Thanks so much for your call. Uh, we're going to, uh, that's the hour. First hour's up. Keep listening. There's a second hour of open line on most of these stations. Remember, if your station doesn't carry open line, on the second hour. You can always listen on the Moody Radio app. You can listen online. You can get the podcast. So don't miss out on that. During the break, check out our webpage, openlineradio.org. It's got everything you're looking for, how to become a kitchen table partner, how to get our current resource, how to get the chosen people resource. The Bible study across America will continue just in a few minutes. So stay with us. Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.